Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that you will help all of us here to sit under your word, to use our minds that you've given us, to search intently uh, together with the Holy Spirit, to apply your word into our lives so that we may live lives pleasing to you in everything. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> now I remember hearing uh, one pastor saying uh, in a sermon that uh, in his decades of Christian ministry, uh, there is one sin that uh, nobody has ever come to him and said, you know, I really struggle with this sin. And uh, he's heard all sorts of sins because he's been in ministry for a long time. But the one sin that uh, no one had ever come to him and said that they struggled with was the problem of pride. Uh, and I think that's true, isn't it? That uh, it's something of a blind spot for us as Christians. You know, we think of sexual morality or murder or hate or gossip. We think, oh, that's terrible. But pride, well, we don't really think of that very much. But at the very same time, I remember hearing another pastor who uh, said that in every Christian biography that he had read of every significant Christian leader, he had found that uh, at some point in time, that leader had said that they had struggled with pride. So I think that uh, pride is something that we, we struggle with and something that we are not aware of, but yet it's something that really exists in many of us. And all the more so, I suppose, because we live in a society where uh, it is okay to be proud. And I think that living in Singapore, there's a lot to be proud of. Uh, we can be proud of being a, a major financial center, a major port, a major airport, uh, having a, you know, a good economy. I remember reading the newspaper, uh, reading about how Orchard Road is now voted one of the best shopping streets in the world. So there's lots of things to be proud of. But at the same time, I guess, that pride can sort of overflow into our Christian life. Now, the city of Corinth was actually very much like Singapore in many ways, except, you know, 2,000 years ago. So, if you look up this, this map, uh, okay, don't worry, it gets bigger, okay, for those of you who don't know what's happening. Okay, this is Corinth, this is Corinth, okay, this is, this is Jerusalem, this is Corinth, this is Greece, okay, but it's actually known as the Roman province of Achaia. So, if you actually have your Bibles, that's why it says in verse 1, together of all the saints in Achaia. Okay, and we're going to expand it up now. Okay, next slide. Okay, so Corinth is here, and as you can see, Corinth is here, Athens is here. Corinth was situated on a major trading route, and it was a very vast and important port in uh, the ancient world. <clears throat> and apparently, it was the leading city of this area, uh, even more important than uh, Athens, because it was uh, the provincial capital of the Roman province. So this is where the Romans situated their political center. So, in many ways, uh, the Corinthians were very proud of their power, their wealth, and their influence. And I think that sort of overflowed into their church life. Now, that's why uh, when we read uh, 2 Corinthians, it starts off in a very strange way. Okay, Because it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints in Archaea. Now, as we read that, we, we don't think it's very special. You know, it, it seems like a very normal sort of opening. But it is strange because we know from other parts of the Bible that the Apostle Paul had founded the church in Corinth and he had spent at least one and a half years in Corinth. But we know also from 1 Corinthians that in the church of Corinth, the people had sort of moved on from their founding father Paul and had began to follow other leaders, uh, leaders who were so-called called by Paul as super-apostles. They were no longer proud to call Paul their leader, 
but they were looking to other people, people of influence, people who preach better, people who are more impressive. So in, in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, you can actually see that as the background as you read it, that there's a struggle where Paul is trying to win back people who he converted, but they had moved on and they were now proud of other people and they were now despising Paul the Apostle. And as a result, they were in danger of rejecting Paul the Apostle and they were in danger of rejecting the gospel that Paul brought. And that's why when you look at verse 1 and verse 2, it's a very strange letter, uh, opening to the letter, because it's almost like me writing you a, a, a letter and saying, you know, this is Andrew Ong, uh, Reverend Andrew Ong or something, you know, pastor for BTPC, when I've known you for years and years. So why does Paul write like this? Well, like I said, there is sort of an underlying struggle of tension between the Corinthian church and Paul. And uh, we can see that in the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We know that Paul has spent one and a half years in the city, but it, it, it didn't seem to, to help the situation very much because he then wrote four letters to uh, the Corinthians and each of them dealt with major problems in his relationship with them. So if you look up here on this slide, okay, there are actually four letters that we know that were written to the, the church in Corinth. Now, obviously, as you look in your Bibles, you say, uh, wait a second, we only got two. Uh, well, we don't know what happened to the other two, but we have an idea what is in the other two. So the first letter uh, uh, was about how uh, Paul was writing to them. As you can see, uh, it's quoted in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says to them, I've written you in my letter, not to associate sexually immoral people. So in the earlier letter, Paul had given them instructions about church life. Now, maybe the Corinthians weren't very happy with the contents of the letter and they trashed it, right? So maybe that's why we don't have it anymore. But then we have the next letter, which is 1 Corinthians, which we have before, uh, we, you know, earlier on before 2 Corinthians. Then there's a third letter, the so-called harsh letter that many commentators talk about. It's harsh because uh, Paul refers to it as grieving. It causes grief to the Corinthian church. Okay, so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, as well as some other passages, but this is the one that I've uh, chosen to show you. He says, I wrote as I did so that when you, I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. So obviously they're causing him some form of distress. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote of you, wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So the third letter, which again, who knows, right? Maybe the Corinthians also didn't like that, so they tore it out and threw it into the dustbin. Okay, is what is called the harsh letter, where in two Corinthians, as you you, you we go through, you you will be, see it being referred to a few times, where Paul says, you know, this letter grieved you. You know, I'm sorry, I, I'm not really that he's sorry that he sent it, but it's a harsh letter to them, where they have to take hard action, and he was hoping that they would listen to him. And today, obviously, we're looking at two Corinthians. So there were four letters that were sent. But why does Paul then, in 2 Corinthians, after he's at least written three letters to them, write in such a formal way and say, look, you know, I'm the apostle of Jesus Christ and to the church of God in Corinth? Well, I think that the important thing we have to note here is that Paul is trying to establish his credentials right from the very beginning that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Right? You can underline that in your Bible because that's what he's really, really trying to emphasize to them. And the word here, apostle, if you look at the Bible dictionary or whatever, the common usage of the word apostle in the Bible means three things. Someone who has met Jesus Christ, someone who has been commissioned by Jesus Christ, 
and someone who has been sent by Jesus Christ. So in the Bible, whenever the word apostle is used, it's often used of the 12 apostles and Paul, because they all met the resurrected Jesus Christ, they were all commissioned by Jesus Christ, and they were all sent by Jesus Christ. And Paul, we know, had actually done all those three things, and that's why he calls himself an apostle. In Acts chapter 9, which is up here, okay, I, I was actually asking my wife about too many references, but she says it's good to you know, fill in all the background, right? Because it's, it's important for us to know exactly what's happening here. So in Acts chapter 9, this is how Paul was converted. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So here, Jesus, he meets the resurrected Jesus, Paul does. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Okay, so he's commissioned by Jesus to do something. And what is he to do? Okay, then later on in verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is to be my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here, Paul, right from the very first verse, is establishing his credentials. He is the true apostle. He is the one they must listen to. He is the one who is sent by Jesus Christ. He is the one who is commissioned by Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because as you can see here, as we will come to chapter 11 some point in time, not this year, right? There are these people called so-called super apostles, right? Or at least that's what Paul calls them, or maybe they call themselves super apostles, who are claiming uh, greater teaching, greater authority than Paul. So Paul wants to start off from the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So his words are higher than any of those teachers or super apostles in the town of Corinth. Uh, who are there right now trying to undermine Paul's authority. So that's who Paul is. And who are, who are the church? Who are the Corinthian church? It says there, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Now, if you read the commentaries, if uh, you look at people who uh, study these things, you can't help but think that when Paul writes uh, chapter 1 verse 1b, He's actually saying that, look, you guys in Corinth, you may be a very rich church, you may be a powerful church, you may be a church situated in the provincial capital of this region, but you are what? You are just the church of God in Corinth, together with all the other saints, all the other Christians in this area. They are not more special, they are not more enlightened, they are not more uh, specially endowed spiritually, but they are just like everybody else, all the other saints in this region. And Paul's point right from the very beginning, if you receive the letter as Corinthian, is, I am the apostle sent by Jesus, you are the church of God, so you must listen to me. Now, I think this is a very important uh, application for us, because, um, I won't burden you with this, but there are many people who actually reject Paul's words or Paul's teaching in the Bible. Uh, if you actually read uh, some books, which are, you probably haven't read, uh, they say, oh, you mustn't listen to Paul, because you know Paul, if you look in the Bible, he's the one who speaks out the most against uh, women being leaders. Right? You know, Paul, he's a misogynist. He's a, what's the other word for it now? Male chauvinist pig. Okay? So, you know, we mustn't listen to Paul because culturally he was like that. But that's not true, isn't it? Because Paul here says that he is actually commissioned and sent by Jesus. The other people who say, oh, you shouldn't listen to Paul because, you know, he's a homophobe. He's against homosexuals. Because, you know, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, that is the most 
a powerful section against uh, the practice of homosexuality. So people say, oh, you know, you can't listen to Paul. You should listen to Jesus because Jesus never really speaks against homosexuality. Jesus is about love, right? But that's not true, you see. Again, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's sent by Jesus and his words are the words of Jesus speaking through Paul. The second application that I can think of within the context of what we read in Corinthians and applying it to ourselves is, uh, you all know that uh, in present day Singapore, or even the world, there are many people who call themselves apostles. Right? There are people who call themselves apostles in this world today, even in Singapore. And there's a great danger that as these people are elevated, that their words, their teachings, uh, become more important than the words of the true apostle in the Bible. Go to the Bible Dictionary. If you ever get a chance, you should buy it. I, I recommend it to all of you. Right? And you'll see that the definition of the apostle in the, in the Bible, generally, the technical word apostle here is someone who has met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who has been commissioned by Jesus and is sent by Jesus. But that surely isn't the qualification of many apostles today, isn't it? So, we must always listen to the, the true apostle or not the apostles of today. So I remember talking to someone recently, uh, and they said to me that uh, in this church that they, 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 they know or they were visiting, that uh, the pastor was saying that Christians should never confess their sins. They should never feel guilty about their sins. And I was like, but this doesn't make sense to me. Because in the book of 1 John, it says very clearly that all of us sin, and when we sin, we must confess our sins. And if we say that we do not sin, or we do not feel guilty for sin, we're actually making God out to be a liar. So here in 1 John chapter, next slide, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, the apostle, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we have made him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So when I told this person that, I said, well, how does this so-called pastor, who is very popular, uh, understand 1 John? He said, oh, well, 1 John is not written to Christians. And I said, but that doesn't make sense because you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that 1 John is to Christians. Because here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says very clearly, Dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, you may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Who, who are they continuing in? Jesus Christ. They are really Christians. So he's telling Christians to confess their sins. But yet, many people in this person's church, it's a big church, would rather believe this teacher uh, and the words of this teacher over the clear teaching of God's apostle in the Bible. And that's wrong. You must never do that. You must always listen to the real apostle, the true apostle, right? those who have been sent by Jesus. Yeah, not even me, right? If I say something wrong against what the Bible says, then you shouldn't listen to me. You should listen to what the Bible says instead. Now, Paul then goes on in verse 3 and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. 
Now, for those of you who are looking at your Bibles now, I hope all of you are looking at your Bibles, it's a very strange passage, really, when you think about it. Now, what is happening here? Uh, we know from the background that the Corinthian Christians wanted to be proud of their teachers, proud of their leaders, and they were not proud of Paul. Okay, they, they, if you, as you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they were not proud because they said his teaching wasn't very uh, impressive. His preaching wasn't impressive. His, 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 uh, they said that he's not very impressive in person. He writes very powerful letters, but you know, when he comes, he's not very, you know, he's not a Hollywood quality, right? Okay? Now, if you were writing to uh, the Corinthian church, how would you write then? I don't know about you, but I would be trying to impress the Corinthians about how great I am, right? How many people have converted? You know, how many people are following me? What acts of power I have done? to try to win back the Corinthians. Uh, it's just like Nike, right? You know, Nike, you, you all know Nike, right? Maybe some of you are wearing Nike now. Why do you all wear Nike? Not to say that, I, mean, I like, I wear Nike myself. Why do you all wear Nike? I mean, people wear Nike because they want to be associated with winners, right? Because only winners wear Nike. I mean, Messi, Barcelona, right? Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. So we wear Nike because we want to be associated with, with, with winners. But here Paul, instead of telling the Corinthian church what a winner he is, He's telling them what a loser he is. Isn't it? Because when you look at this passage, it's all about his suffering. In verse 4, he's got many troubles, right? He, God comforts us in all our troubles. Verse 5, he's got sufferings. Verse 6, he's distressed. Verse 8, he's got hardships. Verse 9, he's got under the sentence of death. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what is Paul doing? Right? Instead of winning the Corinthian Christians, he is sort of telling them that he's such a a suffering person, almost a spiritual loser. So what is what Paul is really doing is that he is trying to make the Corinthians see that their measure of his ministry, uh, they are you know that they're seeking for worldly credentials, worldly boasting, worldly you know impressive ministry is wrong, because the whole reason for him telling them about his trouble, his suffering, his distress, his hardship, his sentence of death, why is he doing all this? Well, if you look here in verse 3 and verse 6, he's doing all for the sake of other people, isn't it? He says here in verse 4, God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble, in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Look at what it says there in verse 6. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So, what he's trying to say is the measure of Christian ministry is not about worldly power or the measure of uh, Hollywood or you know appearances but it's in terms of love shown in suffering and sacrifice for God's people and that's exactly the problem that the Corinthian church had they were rejecting Paul because he was not impressive in a worldly way but Paul says that's the wrong measure by which to measure him because he shows his credentials by the suffering shown to love them and comfort them. Now, I remember reading a, a true story uh, in a book uh, a while ago, but I can't remember what book it was, about a true story about this old faithful minister who was serving in a church in America. And he had been spending decades in this church. And the church had grown to a medium-sized church. And uh, he'd been very faithful in preaching, teaching, and ministering to his flock. But uh, at the end of his life, apparently, uh, the church leadership uh, had become led by a, a man who was a very successful businessman, a CEO of a business. And uh, this businessman in the leadership council 
had said, you know, uh, we want to give this uh, minister some performance uh, criteria. You know, we want to grow our revenue by so much and we want to grow our church numbers by so much. And then I think within a year or two, because obviously the old pastor couldn't do it, they, 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 they asked him to leave and got someone else. And according to the story that I, I believe is true, um, the, the church was destroyed because of that. Because this new minister, because he was always looking for revenue, looking for more and more numbers, he only cared not for the people or sacrificing for them, but only for church growth. And in terms of sacrificing even the gospel for the sake of the church growing. So, here Paul addresses not just the wrong idea of the apostleship, but the wrong idea of Christian ministry. See, the Corinthians were looking for worldly uh, measures of success, worldly impressive uh, ministers. But he said, no, I serve in suffering and my suffering is for your benefit. Now in verse 6 to 7, Paul goes on to say that this suffering that he suffers is not suffering that is exclusive to himself, but is actually suffering which is common to all Christians. Because not only did they have a wrong understanding of ministry or apostleship, but they had a wrong understanding of Christian life. So if you look at me to verse 6 and 7, he says, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. See, notice that. They suffer the same sufferings that they suffer. In verse 7, And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Now, the sufferings that Paul is talking about here is not your cold, your, your backache, or your knee pain, or you know your plantar fasciitis, or stomach ache, right? He's talking about the sufferings that come from being a Christian. In verse 5 he says, Just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So what Paul is talking about here is suffering for being a Christian. and we know that uh, Paul was quite unique because he was commissioned and he knew he was going to suffer. Right. So next slide. Uh, it says that, remember, we read this earlier. Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. So Paul here suffers in a more extreme way than uh, the normal Christians because of the ministry that he's called to. But the sufferings of Paul are not unique to Paul because he suffers as a Christian. The sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of being a Christian. If you follow Jesus Christ, you will suffer. And that's what Jesus himself says in many, many passages. So in Matthew chapter 16, right? Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. In John chapter 15, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours too. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Uh, next slide. Okay, in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Or 2 Timothy 12. Uh, sorry, 2 Timothy is it 12. Yeah, 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and apostles will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what it means is that Christian living is actually painful. It's actually suffering in many ways. Uh, now we've been studying the book of Proverbs. He's not saying that uh, if you suffer for foolish actions, right? If you do stupid things and you suffer, that's you know sufferings of Christ. No, that's just suffering because you're silly, right? But he's talking about suffering for being a Christian. And as a Christian, we have sufferings in this world because it is particular for the life we live in Christ. We will face opposition. We will face persecution. We will face alienation. We will face people thinking bad things about us, not wanting to associate with us. But the problem is, I think, is that if we think that the Christian life is not suffering, if we are uncomfortable with discomfort, then that is going to be a problem. And I think that that's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church again, right? Because the Corinthian church had a theology of what was called triumphalism. You know, they were, they thought the Christian life was the victorious life. That sounds very familiar today, right? Okay? If, let the hearer discern what I mean. Okay? But some people say, you know, the, the Christian life is the victorious life. You will never suffer as a Christian. No more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, this is what uh, they, um, we presume the super apostles were teaching. Okay? Already you have all you want. You've already become rich. You've become kings, and that is without us. How I wish you had really become kings so that we might be kings with you. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise for Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honored. So you are honored, we are dishonored. See, so in the Corinthian church, they were facing the false doctrine of the Christian life being free from all, any sorts of suffering. It was the abundant life of happiness. Every day, sunshine is shining. There's no dark clouds. You know, uh, nothing to worry you. But what Paul is saying here is that actually the Christian life, the authentic, genuine Christian life, does involve suffering. I think two applications for us here. The first application is, if you're not suffering as a Christian today, then I think you should really thank God. Okay, But sooner or later, you will suffer as a Christian if you live as a genuine Christian. You will face rejection by people. You will face ridicule. You will face hardship as a Christian because of your allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ above all things. Because you choose to take up your cross and choose to give up your life, you will face persecution. And by reading this passage today, you will be prepared, you will be forearmed when that time of persecution comes. The second temptation, I think, is not to be like the Corinthian church. Because the Corinthian church sought to avoid suffering because of the theology that uh, they had. In 1 Corinthians, we know that the Corinthian church sought to avoid suffering because they wanted to compromise with the society around them. So the Corinthian church compromised by being sexually immoral, like the, like the society around them. The Corinthian church in uh, 1 Corinthians compromised by not just going to church, 
but also going to the temple. Uh, they were both inclusive. What it, I mean, theologically, there's a word called inclusivism. So they're inclusive. So it doesn't matter how you live, morally or ethically, God still loves you. They were, you know, they were inclusive. It doesn't matter how you live sexually, uh, idolatry, it doesn't matter. You know, you are still saved. That's what they were saying. At the same time, they had a universal gospel in the sense where you could still go to the temple, you could still go to church, God will still love you, everything will be okay. Now, the problem for us is, that's very tempting, isn't it? To avoid suffering and persecution, we will not say the hard things that the Bible says. We will not say things ethically or morally, which is counter-cultural. We will not say things which cause other people to say to us, you know, you're a very bigoted, fundamentalist person. Uh, I think that's the worst thing that someone can say to you as a religious person. Oh, you know, you're a fundamentalist. You know, you're not progressive. You're bigoted. You know? But as Christians, if we hold on to Christian values, then we realize that, okay, we will suffer. Uh, we did uh, the reading before in the responsive reading about Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are those who persecute you because of me. At the same time, when we listen to the promises of the prosperity movement or health and healing movement, every time I listen to those sermons, the thing I always notice in the sermon is the, the, the sermon never tells you that you must live in a certain way. It never makes any judgments in terms of how you live. All it says is you come to Jesus and you're saved, but you don't have to change anything. But the problem is, the Christian gospel and the Christian life is counter-cultural. And because it is counter-cultural, you will suffer. And that is part of the Christian life, and we shouldn't run away from that. But, the solution to suffering is not running away, but Paul says the solution to suffering is to turn to God for comfort. See, look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Now, again, um, the Corinthians, having a great love for power and pride and prestige, how would they think of God? Uh, If you love power and prestige and uh, mighty things, you would think of God as a very mighty, powerful, supreme God. But in verse 3, Paul describes God as the God of compassion, the Father of comfort. Now, what's happening here is that God doesn't promise to deliver us from our suffering. There is no way, I've actually heard people say, you know, claim God's promises and you know He will deliver you from whatever problem you have. But Paul's not saying that. He doesn't say, you know, make God deliver you from his, the suffering you have. No, he says, ask God right, for comfort to sustain you in times of suffering, which is very, very different. Now, what is the comfort that God provides to us? Uh, I remember watching a movie about a, a father or family who lost a child. So they used to go to this support group. I, I presume this happens a lot in, in America. And I think it's a good idea you know, where there are people with support groups who have experienced the same thing. You know, support groups where people suffer from cancer or support groups where people have lost a child. So is that what Paul is talking about here? Because he suffers, he can start a mutual Christian suffering support group. Is that what he's talking about? 
No, he's not talking about that at all. He's saying that God comforts him in a very, very Christian way, in, a, in an objective way, not a subjective way. Right? We can see that in verse 9. Okay, look at what it says there in verse 9. How is he comforted? He says, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The fact that we have a God who raises the dead, well, that's a very comforting thought for Paul. Because that God must be so powerful that he can deliver Paul from any trouble he has, but more than that, deliver Paul even from death itself. The comfort that God gives is not a be happy, don't worry sort of comfort. It is a comfort, an objective comfort to know that God is and will save you from your troubles, if not from this life, then from death itself. And that's why if you look at that passage, he says, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. How can Paul be so confident? Well, he's saying that even even if I die, He will continue to deliver us. That is what gives Paul that comfort. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when I uh, do my quiet time, right, uh, I was told before in theological college that journaling is very important. I don't know whether they still sell pencils and paper nowadays, but, uh, but I still do my journaling with pencil and paper, right? And uh, in the morning, I wake up and I give thanks for five things, spiritual things if I can think of it. But also recently, I've, I've been having this thing called what's weighing on my heart. Right, so if I'm anxious about my work, or I'm troubled about some relationship, or I've got some worry about something or other, then I'll write it down, what's, what's weighing on my heart. But then after I read the Bible, uh, particularly if I read the, the, the New Testament or some promise looking towards the future, and I realize that, the, that you know, the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead, and the promises that He has for us for the future, then even on my darkest days where my heart is really weighed down with lots of worries and anxieties, the whole world looks different, isn't it? Because if you know that God is the God who raises the dead and He will exercise that power on you and nothing will separate you from that love and power of God, then you you realize that you don't feel so heavy-hearted anymore because you realize that there is something greater than your worry for the day. There's something bigger than whatever is weighing your heart. And I think that's what Paul is talking about, the objective comfort of the knowledge of this wonderful God who has given us his hope. But he goes on, uh, at the last part, to actually say something about how the Corinthians themselves uh, have a part to play in his comfort. Look at what it says there in verse uh, 10 and 11. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now what he's saying here, uh, basically is that he is comforted because they have prayed for him. He has been delivered because they are praying for him. And many people will give thanks to them for praying for him because he is now strong in Christ. Now, I wonder whether we think of prayer that way. Uh, I wonder whether we see prayer as a way of comforting other people or in helping them be strong in their faith. Because that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. They have delivered Paul from this terrible circumstance where he was going to die by praying. 
not by being there or you know helping him in some way, but just by praying. Now, that's what the power of prayer is, isn't it? That's why we can help one another by praying for one another. I wonder whether when we say to one another, I'll pray for you, whether we really mean it, whether we do pray for one another. Now, a few weeks ago, just two weeks ago, uh, we met Mikey, you know that Australian guy, and his wife, and they were going to uh, Northeast Asia. And um, after the service, and uh, after his presentation, I went to talk with him. And I said, look, why don't you send me your prayer letter, and I'll pray for you. And he was so happy right, that someone was going to pray for him. Because if I was, I guess, in his shoes, and I was going to Northeast Asia, and I was going to face all these difficulties, how can we help him? We can't help him any other way, right? We can't go there and help him or you know, do things like that. But we can pray for him. And by praying for him, if we believe that God is powerful and we, he's shown that power by raising Jesus from the dead, then God can act to help him and deliver him from troubles, if he wills. But God can also make sure that he stays strong in Christ and be comforted even as he suffers difficulties. I know Billy Graham one of the greatest evangelists uh, in the 20th century, was asked, if you look back in his ministry, what would he do more? And Billy Graham said he would pray more. Now what an amazing thing to think that here is a person who converts people in huge stadiums saying that actually, if he could do anything different in his ministry, he would pray more. So as we come to our conclusion, just think of, I'll give you a, a, a mission to do a lot. Just think of one person today in our midst, in our church, that you want to go and, and, and comfort. Comfort with a word from God or some sharing that you have. And think of one person among us here today that you can pray for. Right? Somebody that you want to pray for that God would actually work in their lives. Right? Because that's, I think that's what Paul was doing, isn't it? Paul was using his experiences to comfort other people and they were praying for him. And that is what fellowship is all about. Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is not us coming here to worship God, right? I remember I told you the illustration of how some man came to church and he told a pastor friend of mine, oh, I didn't come to church to love people, I came here to worship God. That's the wrong understanding, okay? We come to church here to, to love one another by comforting one another and praying for one another. That's one of the reasons we come together. That's why we don't meet together on the internet, right? And watch a, uh, watch a uh, uh, what do you call it? A screen grab of me preaching or something. So, here we're talking about the right thinking of apostleship. We must listen to Paul and not the apostles of today. The right thing about ministry is not about flashy numbers and, and you know, uh, like Hollywood production. It's all about genuine love and care for people expressed in sacrifice. The right thinking of Christian life that we share in the sufferings of Christ. The right thinking about God, that God is a God who comforts us because He raises us from the dead. But also the right thinking about fellowship, that we come together to comfort one another. Right, comfort one another and to pray for one another. So let's truly understand from God's word what it means to be a Christian and to live a Christian life. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how the Corinthians are not so different from ourselves, that we are all human, we still struggle with the same temptations, the same mistakes, the same struggles. Help us to see that there are times where we may be tempted do not listen to your word in the Bible, but listen with itching ears instead to what people say so that uh, we may find a gospel which is more attractive to us, but in the end 
is actually not faithful to you. Uh, we pray for ourselves too, uh, that uh, we see that the Christian life, as Jesus has said over and over again, as your word tells us, that if we want to live a holy life before you, if we want to follow in the steps of Jesus, we will be faced with the same sufferings that Jesus faced. And uh, we pray that we will live and be faithful, even in the midst of those sufferings, and not escape by compromise or by changing uh, our life. And dear Father, we pray for our own fellowship, that we may truly give comfort to one another and to pray for one another. For truly, as we've seen from Paul and the Corinthian Christians, uh, we help one another be built up in Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.